Welcome to the Make One Day Happen podcast. I'm your host, Sheena Jean. This podcast is designed to inspire, educate, and empower people to elevate their consciousness and activate their full potential. We share stories, ideas, and resources that support our listeners in their personal and professional growth by hosting meaningful conversations that spark aha moments. Laughing, learning, leveling up, all guaranteed. We'll be hearing from innovative thought leaders, CEOs, professional athletes, best-selling authors, musicians, and more as they share lessons they've learned along the way and ideas that can change the world. A great podcast doesn't happen without a great team, and we're proud to partner with Lost Range CBD and The Plug Agency to bring this show to life. So pull up a seat and let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Make One Day Happen podcast. Our guest today is Heidi Zuckerman. She is a globally recognized CEO in contemporary art, an author and a speaker. Heidi and I met through the Aspen Art Museum where she was the CEO for over 14 years and she made my retail dreams come true when she bought me on as the buyer and manager of the museum gift shop. It's definitely a thing in retail. Everyone wants to get to the buyer job. So thank you for helping me achieve that goal in my, my retail career. And I've, you guys have always admired Heidi for so many things, but specifically her drive, her ability to hold a steady vision through to completion and her incredible interviewing skills, which definitely have me a little nervous, but I'm so excited to welcome you here today. So I'm, I'm super excited to have Heidi here. I'm, she's provided some incredible experiences for me, um, getting a glimpse into the world of contemporary art. I'd say just to give you guys an idea of what that world kind of looks like. Uh, my three favorite things from working with you at the Aspen Art Museum, and it was really tough to pick three, but would be watching you interview Jeff Koons um, at the Aspen Institute was just truly, truly incredible. Uh, being able to see you facilitate the live auction where Troy Carter just went at it for that Rashid Johnson amazing piece at Art Crush was just, uh, just mind blowing. And um, touring Lance's Armstrong, Lance Armstrong's private collection at his home when they were filming his 30 for 30. I mean, I just, I can't make these things up and to have had the opportunity to experience them through what you've created at the, the art museum was just truly magical and some highlights of my career. So welcome Heidi. Um, I want you to go ahead and just share a little bit about yourself and your journey so our listeners can get to know you. Sheena, thanks so much for inviting me. And it's always really interesting to get that kind of feedback on how things feel for other people. And that those are such generous comments on my um, impact on you. And, you know, certainly I'm here today because I'm really grateful for our professional relationship and, and how you were really of service to the institution that I cared about and, and to me personally and in so many ways. So I really value that. Same. Feelings mutual. So let's let's give the viewers a little bit of your backstory, maybe how how you got to the Aspen Art Museum, kind of maybe your top three moments, if that's, yours have got to be way harder to choose from than mine were. So uh, maybe just a little, give, give the listeners an introduction to yourself and, and a little bit about your story. Sure. I often start to tell my story by talking about the fact that my grandmother was a collector and that I grew up around art and that my parents really didn't like it. So I grew up in a house full of objects without any information around them. So I was able to 
come up with my own stories about works of art. And that's one of the things that I most value is the ability to tell stories and to tell stories about things that matter and matter to me. And I think hopefully matter to a broader world. I came to the Aspen Art Museum in 2005. And part of the reason that I was interested in taking that job, I had been working at the Berkeley Art Museum. I was the matrix curator there. And I did 40 exhibitions, one person exhibitions of solo artists uh, who at the time that they were done mostly were not well known. And these are artists who have come to define our generation and our time. And those are some of the things that I'm the most proud of is, is to give these artists a platform to have more people be introduced to their work. And that was something that I was able to continue to do in Aspen. If I look back on maybe a few of my top memories of Aspen, one would be a lot of different things associated with the opening of the new Shigeru Bond building. One would be being able to do a show that I'd wanted to do my whole life and Eve Klein, David Hammond's exhibition. Mm. Another would be being able to pull off with so many different people's help, the Sai Gao Chang explosion event, the Black Lightning over Aspen Mountain. But another thing that I really enjoyed was when we received the National Medal and we traveled to Washington, D.C., and um, we were able to bring our partner, the, the head of the La Tricolore radio station in um, Carbondale to Washington, D.C. It was his first trip to D.C. And in uh, the space between when we had to do our practice of getting the medal from Cokie Roberts and then actually getting it, I was able to hire a car and take him around to some of the key monuments in Washington, D.C. and share that experience of um, the American capital and my pride in our country uh, and what winning the National Medal really meant for me uh, and for the institution on, on a broad level. And maybe another thing would be after we opened the museum, we did a dinner uh, up on the roof deck sculpture garden and we invited not just our entire staff but their entire families and mm -hmm. had this really amazing dinner with long tables and i wanted to do uh i love south carolina and i love southern food and our culinary partner uh, alan dominguez and julie dominguez he's southern also and so we came up with the idea of um kind of like a like a combination of like a a lobster bake and a fr fish fry and <laughs> oh, um, with man, a Colorado this... twist on it. I love and that. It was really important to me to be able to not just thank our staff, but to be able to thank everyone's families because a lot of people made a lot of sacrifices for us to be able to do that project. Um, it was really hard. It took a lot of time and I really wanted to be able to honor the people that I love and the people that I love who they love. And that was something that I, I really loved being able to do was to be able to sit at that table with my kids and um, our colleagues and their families and to really celebrate everyone's commitment and hard work. Oh, that's so special. And 
I think a, a great segue to one of the first ideas I, I want to explore with you. Um, for the listeners out there, if you have not had a chance to visit the Aspen Art Museum, definitely put it on your list. And if you um, are not familiar with the building or the institution, Google it. Maybe not right now after the show, once you're done listening to everything, but it is one of the most visually captivating buildings I've ever been in. Um, I'm a amateur architecture, architecture nerd is what I call myself. And um, when I first landed in Aspen in 2016, I went and had lunch on the roof deck and was just blown away. Um, the building is uh, by the architecture Shigeru Ban, and he won the Pritzker Prize in 2014. And the amount of effort, like you were saying, the the people, the resources, the time, the energy to get this building uh, up and running in Aspen was no easy feat. And you experienced some pushback from the community in it because it, it wasn't the traditional building that you might see. And I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about what it's like to hold steady with a vision when you're when you're faced with some opposition because I think that's something that's a place where I see people getting tripped up and they find that the roadblocks coming up and it can be easy to be like oh well this just must not be meant to be or you know whatever sort of excuses might come up so can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how you were able to really champion that vision through to completion absolutely I mean nothing that's worth doing is easy Amen. It's just not. Yep. <laughs> so the, um, I think if you're committed to something and, and you really see the value of it, sometimes it's easy to not understand why other people wouldn't see things the way that you do. But everyone sees things individually and people's perspectives are informed by their own experiences. And we value different things. And one of the, the things that we're seeing, I think, a lot today is that people can only see what they value and they just automatically disregard what they don't value. And I think that that's a mistake. I, I, one of the things that I really try and do is, is to understand everyone else's perspective. And it's not that I have to agree with it, um, but I do have to kind of honor it because it's their perspective. Mm -hmm. And I understand when people don't agree with my perspective or don't value what I value. And, you know, I may spend some time trying to convince them of it, but it doesn't really, it doesn't usually work. <laughs> we, we used <laughs> to true. use the chocolate and vanilla argument in Aspen uh, with the museum. We would say, you know, if you, if you love chocolate and I love vanilla and I can't really convince you that vanilla is better than chocolate. And you can't really convince me of the other. But it, I don't have to. And you don't have to. We can kind of um, like peacefully coexist or we can honor someone else's perspective. And for me, I really believed that a new building that was purpose built for art in Aspen would be additive to the community. I really believed that it would add value. I believed that it would make the lives of the citizens better and that it would offer opportunities for people to have experiences that they couldn't otherwise have. And it was important for me to do that in a way that was um, as open and available to as many people as possible. 
So it was important to me not to take tax dollars um, and to have it be 100% privately funded. And it is um, and was. And it was also really important for me for it to be free so that there was um, as few barriers of entry as possible. And I know that even being able to come to Aspen implies a lot of privilege. Uh, mm -hmm. It's hard to get to. Um, gas is super expensive. Lodging is expensive. Food is expensive. And there are all ton, all sorts of barriers of entry, tons of barriers of entry to even get there. Uh, and I felt like if people were privileged and fortunate enough to even get themselves to Aspen, that I did want them to have to pay to come to the museum. I wanted to be able to provide that as an opportunity for anyone who was fortunate enough to be there already. So I just, um, you just kind of one step it, you know, I mean, there's this Taoist idea that, you know, like the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And it's true. You know, you just have to do one thing. And um, on days where it feels overwhelming to actually think about what your larger purpose is, your larger mission, these larger, seemingly insurmountable goals, just do one thing. Like, what's the one thing that you're going to do today? And I, as you know, Sheena, I'm really interested in personal rituals and I do the same five things every morning. And that makes me feel accomplished. And it gives me the opportunity to then tackle at least one other thing in the day. And that can be a big thing or some days it's just a small thing, um, but it's, it's something every day. Hey yo, popping in real quick to tell you about my latest obsession, Lotus Way flower essences. Hear me out on this one. I have been using these daily since April and holy cannoli, I'm loving them. We met at an event in Arizona and they were like, hey, are you interested in experiencing more clarity, focus and peace? And I was like, uh, hey, yeah, those are some of my favorite things that I help people find too. And I would always love more of that. So I've been using their elixir, their spray and their oil. The elixir is my favorite. It's like a tincture that I put in my morning beverages and my water throughout the day. Then I also mess myself down with their spray and of course anoint myself with their oil in the afternoon. Basically Lotus Way is a very easy way to add some nature back into your day, breaking up some of the interference and negative effects of our digital lifestyles. As a solopreneur living a downtown lifestyle, I need all the easy nature support I can get y'all. So this has been amazing. Like me, you might be wondering, WTF is a flower essence, Sheena. I did some research so we can all understand the difference between these and essential oils. Flower essences don't have ascent and they work through the acupuncture meridians. It's a liquid infusion of a flower or a plant's chi or life force, whereas an essential oil is distilled and extracted from the plant into a highly aromatic oil. So they have this super dope flower quiz that you look at the flower, see which one resonates most with you, which helps you figure out which of their remedies would be best for you. It's so much fun to take. Y'all know I love me a quiz. So if you want, you can head over to check them out at www.lotuswei.com forward slash one day and use the code do it now to get 25% off the month of August. That is a steal y'all. Now back to the show. Can you tell us what those five things are? Absolutely. So I make my bed. I write in first thing you got to do it. Yeah. First thing. Got to do it. I write in a journal. I personally like the five-minute journal. It asks. Uh, it starts with a quote. It talks about three things that you're grateful for, 
three things that would make your day great and one affirmation. And I end my day with the same journal, three amazing things that happened in the day and one thing I could have done to make the day even better. Mm-hmm. Um, so bed, journal, I meditate. Uh, first thing in the morning, I like an app called um, Insight Timer. Sometimes I use a guided meditation. Sometimes I just use the timer, but I use that every morning. I make a matcha latte um, with oat milk and I use different matcha. Sometimes it's matcha that people have given me. Sometimes it's matcha I bought when I've been somewhere special. Other times it's just come from Amazon, but it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, And I exercise and I... Uh, back to you. Okay. <laughs> I often will hike or do yoga, but recently I started doing the five Tibetans um, exercise. Yes. And I do that first thing in the morning. And then I have like a longer exercise, you know, usually later in the day, but it just gives my morning a more condensed uh, and focused opportunity to do all five things every morning instead of all five things throughout the course of the day. I love that. Um, I have also used the gratitude journal, the five minute gratitude journal. And it's, it's just such a powerful way to really have your brain. It's like, it gives your brain a filter to really scan through for the day and to look back and reflect on. And um, I, I'll link that one in the show notes in case people are interested in checking it out. Cause it's such a helpful tool for sure. I'd like to talk about, well, first, I think I want to give the listeners um, some context to the museum in and of itself and how, you know, you mentioned that it was free, which is definitely one of the biggest things that I saw when, when visitors came, they're like, I can't believe this is free. It was, it was such a unexpected surprise for them. Um, and one of the things that I, I still find myself educating other people on is the idea of it being a non-collecting museum. Um, because I think the idea that we all, not we all, but a lot of us may have is that, you know, you go to a museum and like what's in their collection and it's going to be the same thing in this room. Oh, I've been there and I've seen that. And at the Aspen Art Museum, it was, there was, there was no permanent collection and there, it was always rotating artists. And I was listening to um, your Gorilla Girls podcast, which is my favorite one so far. That is such a great episode. So timely, relevant, and just amazing to, to hear that conversation. Um, and in that you, Katie mentions that museums have to collect a wider net in order to tell the collective story that we can't just showcase the most expensive or the most successful pieces. And you respond to that by confirming that the vast majority of museum collections are gifts from donors who are typically white men and that's straight from their collections. And so one of the things I'd I'd like to hear from you is because the AAM is a non-collecting museum, was that a specific strategy that you really went after in order to be able to bring in more representation for some of the groups that, you know, as you mentioned, you like to give a platform to that um, women, BIPOC, don't always have the same representation? And was that intentional in your strategy with the museum? Well, the museum was always founded as a non-collecting museum. That's how uh, the mission was originally written. And there were a couple of different points in time where there was the consideration of, of starting a collection. And, and that was one of the things that was discussed with me when I joined the job 
uh, or joined the institution, took the job. And I was an advocate for uh, remaining a non-collecting institution because I didn't feel that we could put together an impressive and representational collection you know, in 2005, uh, when I joined the museum, based on the value of art, on the cost of actual objects, um, and and then the the challenges of of caring for a collection, doing the conservation, the storage, the insurance, and for me, there uh, wasn't a great cost benefit analysis on that. I also saw starting a collection as kind of a donor relations nightmare. Um, because mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, what people donate or give away is is not their A work. You know, it's often a, you know, B or C or D. And and I did say that the majority of museum collections come from uh, gifts and donations, and and that's amazing that people are willing to support the institution in that way. I didn't make the connection that they're often that donors are often white males. Um, I mean, those are kind of two separate ideas and. You know, you can make the connection between them, but but I didn't make that connection um, because, you know, there are a ton of women who support museums. There are increasingly um, people of color that are supporting museums. And and there are a lot of people that are doing a lot of work on on trying to broaden the um, both the audience and the um, support groups and um, the visibility of of um, of people. So that, that support museums. I think great clarifications. And I, I've always really valued your commitment to that. I think that is in the world that we live in, the more, the more of the collective that we can tell the stories, the better, right. And to have that representation and and to do so um, in Aspen, I think was one of the things that I loved most about the artists that I got to know. I, I, I don't have a contemporary art background as, as you well know, but for the listeners and I've always enjoyed going to museums. I've always loved learning about it and being able to learn more about the, the world of contemporary art and how it mirrors and parallels a lot of what's happening in society. And so how, how you've been able to throughout your career advocate for those who don't have that straight, easy path into the world, I think is really admirable and um, something that I, I want to recognize you for because it's, it's so needed right now. And uh, to be able to experience that in, in, in the moment and see these incredible artists that I would have maybe never heard of, um, probably not. And to be able to experience their work through that lens, I think is just a special part of who you are and what you offer um, in that industry. You know, I've always just tried to invite the artists whose work I found to be the most interesting and the most powerful to partner uh, with us. You know, whether I was working at the Berkeley Art Museum or the Jewish Museum or the Aspen Art Museum or independent projects or now the podcast, I, I really am just interested in the artist whose vision and whose intention I think is meaningful and powerful and dynamic and impactful. And that has happened throughout my career to be oftentimes female artists and, and artists of color. Um, but I was never going out and trying to, you know, just seek out uh, 
anything other than the artists who I thought were the best. You've got a good eye for that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I, um, I want to talk briefly getting away from museum things. I think one of the things I love most about our relationship was these small moments in our time together um, where we connected on things of spiritual nature and of personal development nature. And there was, um, there was a time when I came to you in the office and I was really frustrated with um, a situation with a, a colleague. And I don't know if you remember how this all started, but I was, I was, explaining my, my point and my side. And, and you said, well, have you ever considered that maybe you're the problem here? And I would, <laughs> and it was, I was like, um, she's clearly not listening to me. How could I be the problem in this situation? And you, you go on to say, well, there's this idea of Ho'oponopono. And I'm like, what, like, what did you just say? And are you listening to me? What's happening in this conversation? And it really like stopped me in my tracks and I had to like pause. And I know sometimes when I don't feel heard or um, acknowledged in what I'm trying to share, I, I get like defensive and I felt that happening in that moment and, and relaxing into that and like staying open to what you, you had to share was um, I'm so glad I did because you introduced this idea of Ho'oponopono, which has left a tremendous impact on me. And I actually just wrote an article about it for a magazine. And so you're indirectly in there as the mentor who was not listening to me at the top of the article and then turned out to be delivering like one of the best gifts I could have ever received. So do you want to tell our listeners about Ho'oponopono and, and sure. how you found it? Yes. So um, Ho'oponopono is a Hawaiian form of forgiveness. And the way that I understand it is there was a prison in Hawaii uh, where the most difficult and um, challenged and problematic prisoners would be held. And it was a place where everyone hated to be. Obviously, the prisoners hated to be there, but also the guards hated to be there. The staff hated to be there. It was just like a, a really negative and, and dark place. And they brought in a new um, therapist, doctor, and he asked for the files of the inmates and he would sit at his desk and he would open the files and he would read about the atrocities that the inmates had um, engaged in. And he would say four things. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And I love you. And he would say it over and over until he felt like it had been cleared um, and he would close the file and then he'd open the next one and he'd do the same thing. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And I love you. And he spent three or four years there going through all the files, never meeting with a single person in person. And when he was done, he returned all the files. He left the prison and the energy there had changed. And it's a really interesting practice because it's about taking responsibility for whatever role you play in every situation that we're in. And, you know, I'm a huge proponent of the 97% rule in Buddhism, where you take percent, you take responsibility for your 3%. Um, 
whatever that is. And Ha'oponopono is even maybe more powerful than that because, you know, you're taking responsibility. You're saying you're sorry. Um, you ask for forgiveness. Um, you express gratitude. And then you open your heart for love. And it sounds super simple, but it's actually really challenging. And a lot of people can't do it. And not to be gendered, but I talk to a lot of different people about this. And the people who are usually most resistant and, and won't even try it are men. And they're like, well, I, you know, I didn't do anything. It's like, now I fall. Like, I don't love them. You know what? And I'm like, oh, you know, okay. <laughs> like, I hear all your energy around that and, you know, just sit with it, right? Like, I, you know, love the notion that you can't want something for someone more than they want it for themselves. And mm -hmm. so being able to just sit with that um, and, and know that. So it's, it's really powerful. And I, I use it a lot. Um, I cleared all sorts of relationships with my former husband, you know, again, just by saying it out loud or even thinking about it and, and not in his presence, just for myself, you know, or my dad or different friends. And um, anytime I feel um, bad about someone um, or I, you know, it's, it's me, it's no one's making me feel um, mm. any way. It's just me feeling that way. Um, yes. And when I feel that way, uh, I often will turn to Ha'oponopono and, and I'll just say it, you know, enough times um, until it, it clears. I, I love it. And it's, it's been something that I've been integrating into my life since you've shared it with me. And I'd say the most powerful experience I've had with it was just recently um, this past summer, I spent a month in Tulum and um, I got a massage and backtracking a little bit. Um, in 2016, I was on my honeymoon in Thailand getting a massage and became really aware and conscious of the thoughts I was thinking about my body in that massage. And they were awful. They, I, it was a, a hard time where I was mentally with my relationship with my body. And I just had this awakening to like, Sheena, listen to yourself and like what you're saying right now, like you got a hard stop right now and just practice gratitude right now for every place that the therapist is touching you, like practice gratitude for your arm and your calf. And, and so that is, and I made a commitment to myself in that, that treatment that I would never have another massage again in my life, unless I was committed to practicing gratitude to my, towards my body the entire time. And so fast forward now to Tulum, um, I got on this table and I, whatever reason, like Ho'oponopono dropped in and I decided to practice Ho'oponopono for myself and my body for the entire massage. And it's one of the most energetic experiences of my life, what I felt afterwards and like this, like true transformation and shift into self-worth into self-love and like really being able to meet myself at a place I'd never had before. And so I offer that practice out there to anyone who, who might be struggling with things like self-worth or self-love and, and using this with, with your, within your own ecosystem of, of who we are, because it, it really is a very simple yet transformative practice. And I am forever grateful for you pushing back on me that day in your office and, and letting me squirm and sit there and figure out what the heck you were trying to, to tell me. Because yeah, at, at, when you first hear this, you're like, what? 
why on earth would I take responsibility for that inmate's issues or that colleague's stuff that they're bringing or, um, and it really does, it comes back to responsibility and being willing to see that you're the one being triggered by it. Right. So what, what is there for you to sit with and explore? So thank you for that lifelong lesson I will always have with me. You're welcome. And, you know, I heard this idea, you know, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Right. Mm. And, you know, I mean, they're very, there are certain things, of course, you know, that I will not compromise on. Um, but most things like, it's okay. You don't have to be right. You know, mm. it's all right. If someone else needs to be right, more right. That, that's okay. For whatever reason, they need to be more right. So they just can be. Mm-hmm. We can, we can Go- allow that. Absolutely. Going back to that, holding space for other perspectives. So one of the fascinating facts that I got to learn about you when, when working with you at the museum was that at the time, um, you were one of four female museum directors in America to raise over a hundred million dollars for your organization. And so I've got a two part question here for you. Do you have an estimate on what your, your tenured raise for the organization was? Over 130 million. Amazing. I mean, amazing, amazing. And so uh, along that thread, can we talk about some tips on how to powerfully ask for what you need? Because I think that that's something that people struggle with. I know I have in my lifetime and, and I, I think you have demonstrated that you have figured out some ways to, to make that happen. So can you talk to us about that process? Yes. Interestingly, when I was raising money for the Aspen Art Museum, I wasn't asking for myself and I wasn't asking for anything that I needed. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about fundraising as creating an opportunity for people to be a part of something that matters. And people can either choose to decide to join that or also decide equally validly that it, it doesn't have meaning to them or it doesn't matter to them and, and they don't see themselves there. So I, I think about fundraising as, um, yeah, providing those opportunities. And that was how I approached all, all of that. And maybe a key to that success was, you know, it, it was never about me and it was, you know, never about, you know, what I needed. I was, I was always, um, asking on behalf of something that I thought was essential um, to the greater good and the the um, the development and establishment of good society. So it was something that that I knew that it mattered to me, and so I was willing to, um, yeah, ask anyone for anything um, to, in order to help make that happen. You know, in terms of personally asking for what I need. I think that it is harder, you know, it's definitely harder when you're um, involved or in, in something or attached to something. And so I really try and practice non-attachment and it doesn't mean that I don't want certain things to happen or I don't dream about certain things or desire other things. And um, I've, I've learned though that, you know, we, we can only see like a certain distance in front of us. 
right? And the road turns, you know, or you're walking down the path by the Rio Grande, which, I, you know, I love to do. And you can only see so far and you can't see beyond that. Um, so it's about a comfort level with knowing that there are things that we can't know um, yet. And so even if I really want something to happen, I'm really attached to something, I really think someone is the perfect person or, you know, the perfect opportunity or, uh, and it doesn't go the way that I had originally like desired or hoped or imagined. I just believe that it's because there's something better. And I was really fortunate to be in Thailand last year, actually the same week last year, and to perform a lot of merit. Um, it really makes me feel good to do things for other people um, and to be of service. I think that's the highest and greatest use of, of, our, of our abilities. And so I performed a lot of merit when I was there. And every time I did, not every time, but many times when I did, I would um, be, be blessed by a monk or multiple monks. And in that blessing, you are given the opportunity to, to think of a, a wish, you know, what, what you wish for. And they bless you. And at the end of the blessing, they say what you wish for or something greater right now. And so I love that, like the immediacy, they're like, you don't have to wait forever, like right now. <laughs> so it's like, okay, it may not be what you want, but it's going to be what you want, or it's going to be something better. Um, and it's going to be right now. So that. that is, yeah, really great. And um, so part of asking for what I want is, is also not being attached to the answer, because if it doesn't work, it's because I know there's something better coming. Mm. That's so good. So good. I think one of the things that you, I, I witnessed you always powerfully ask for and be a stand for as a CEO was your role as a mother too, that it was very clear that that was your first role. And I think that that's something that women can really struggle with in juggling a career, juggling a family. And I think that you've been able to do that so beautifully. And, and, and because of doing that, like we get to know your children better too, right? It's like, oh, we'll come around the corner and it's like, Hey, how are you? How, how is, you know, horse riding practice today? That's not what you call it, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, I just, I love, I love your viewpoint on that. And if you want to share some, some insights there, I think we could all learn from that as well. My first museum job was working at the Jewish museum. And I worked for a woman named Susan Goodman. She was the chief curator and she had been the chief curator since the year that I was born. Um, so she had, you know, a significant tenure by the time I even worked for her. Uh, mm -hmm. And at the time, she, I worked as her curatorial assistant and, and she said, you know, if my kids call and her kids, you know, were basically like my age, you know, like a couple years younger, maybe. Um, and she said, you know, if my kids call, interrupt me because um, I'm always available to them. And I was like, your kids are like my age, you know, and like I was 20 something, you know, mm -hmm. uh, early 20s. And, and I was like, you always take calls from your kids, like while you're at work. And, and, you know, that's kind of what I was thinking. And then I sort of witnessed it. And, 
And she said, you'll understand, you know, one day when you have kids. And, and at the time I said, oh, I'm not going to have kids. You know, I just might, you know, I just want to be a museum cur- you know, curator. And she said, well, I mean, you basically are already. Uh, and, you know, if one day you will have curated enough shows and if you don't have kids, you'll regret it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, curate enough shows? Like, no way. I have, how, how could I happen? never? <laughs> right. Yeah. At this point, I counted up the like last week. And um, cause I always said like I've curated more than a hundred shows, but I actually counted and it's more than 200 shows. That's wow. like a lot of shows, <laughs> a lot of shows. Uh, Amazing. Yeah, it's a lot of exhibitions and I'm fortunate to also have two kids and I have always, yeah, brought them to the museum. I've always included them um, in meeting the artists. I've always asked their opinion about the kids programs that we were doing um, about items that we were having in the shop. Um, you know, I am way cooler because of my kids. I, you know, <laughs> I, I read the questions in advance. Uh, some of them, some of them we haven't talked, you know, I, I didn't get a heads up on, but, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, one is about music and, and I love hip hop. Um, and the reason that I do is, you know, because of my son and my daughter and her friends think it's hilarious that, you know, like I know the words to like these hip hop songs and, and rap songs and and you know that's my tastes have been um influenced by my kids and the other day my son was was home and uh, he wanted thai food and he did some research and found this like total like hole in the wall that you know i would not have found myself and i sat across the table from him as we were eating thai food and i thought oh my god one of the most amazing things about having kids is um influencing their taste right and having them influence your taste and having someone who likes to do what you do uh, with you and what an incredible incredible gift that is oh totally and i i do remember getting into your car to go to the jeff coons interview and yeah there was hip-hop on and it totally took me by surprise because i i am a huge hip-hop fan myself and i just i didn't see that one coming further down the road as something that we would have in common either so um let's give a thank you to your son for that thank you emerson we appreciate you influencing heidi's taste on that so let's talk about what you're up to now how are you spending your time and what are you creating? Because it's no doubt amazing. Thank you. I am doing a podcast and it's really fun. You know, it's, it's really like an advocation rather than a vocation. And mm. it's really great to be able to do something just because you want to. And it is called Conversations About Art. People can listen on Apple Podcasts. They can listen on Spotify, wherever they listen to their podcasts. And they drop every Tuesday. And we do talk about art. And I and I talk to artists and I talk to art world people. And I also talk to CEOs and politicians and musicians and winemakers and sommeliers and just people that I find interesting and that I want to spend an hour talking to and and to be able to share those conversations with a, with a broader audience. I also have a book series. It's called Conversations with Artists. And volume one and volume two are out. And I'm working on volume three. You it are? Will, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the content's almost done. We have uh, three more conversations to have. And it will it'll be published in the fall. 
um, but working on working on that and there's some connection sometimes with the podcast which is really fun and I just not sure when this is going to air but I just signed on as um, the key strategic advisor for a company based in London and Amsterdam which is called Aubin Art and founded by um, these young guys and I love what they're doing. They are radically making art more available to the next generation. Oh, amazing. Congrats. That's so exciting. And I think that's one of the things um, I've, I, again, so many things that I admire about you. And one of the things that you helped open my eyes to is, is that next evolution. Once you have been in your career, you know, how do you start to seek out boards and advisory roles and, um, prepare yourself for for that sort of experience. I remember you you going through a class, um, I think through like Harvard Business School or something like that, and and it, it it was something that I had it hadn't dawned on me that like oh okay I'm witnessing like the process to doing this because of course sitting on a board one day sounds amazing and like how do you get there how do you do this and so being able to watch you step into that next evolution of your career was was very inspiring and eye-opening to like give me a little cheat sheet for when I get there on some things that I can do so congrats that's amazing and looking forward to hearing more about that because I think accessible art is just so 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 important as I mean I'm clearly like preaching not even to the choir but to the preacher, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> on, on that. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited to hear more as that unfolds and to read your new book. And definitely you guys, if you're listening, check out conversations about art, her podcast. It's fantastic. Um, what are you, what have you been reading lately? Because I'm always curious as to, by the way, you guys, Heidi's office at the Aspen Art Museum was one of my favorite parts of this incredible building because of the books that she has in there. Her bookshelf collection is top-notch, top-notch. And um, yeah, I'm always interested in learning what you're reading. So please tell. So I've gone back to reread some books that have been really key um, for me over time. And um, I've been reading some Eckhart Tolle. Um, I've been rereading some um, Pema Chodron. I've been rereading some Benet Brown. And um, I also just reread um, Timber Hawkeye's Buddhist Boot Camp. So you can tell. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Actually, I listened to the audiobook on that one because I like his voice. But obviously focused kind of um, in this area right now of um, like refocused on kind of the spiritual development. And, and I have really recently been able to start traveling a bit again and looking at art again and on my own and a little bit with other people. But, you know, for a lot of the year, I mean, I was not on a plane for the longest period of time, uh, really, in my mm -hmm. adult life. And being kind of far from art and being far from all my art books, which are in boxes, I wanted to um, really come up with ways to not just allow time to pass, um, but how to be present in the now. And those are some books that are helpful to me. Mm, yeah, I mean, those are some of the, the world's greatest thinkers when it comes to learning how to be in, in the present moment, which is 
the point of it all, right? <laughs> if we if we can get there. Um, so do you remember the last song that you danced to? Totally, because it was last okay. night. And Great. the way that I listen to music sometimes is I get a song in my head and then I just, I want to hear it. And then I want to hear it like six or seven times, <laughs> like to the <laughs> point almost like that I get sick of it. Um, yeah. But I just, um, and so uh, last night I was dancing to 25 Carat, um, his song Mood. It's so English. good. I love that <laughs> song. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. It's so such a bop. I was making it's... dinner. Yeah, it's a bopping song. You hear the different lyrics each time you listen to it. Different things kind of come out at you. And um, it just like, it's like a truth telling song. You know, mm. it's about like, you know, what do you care about? Like, what are you focused on? And like, what actually matters? And that's how mm. we need to live, you know, every day. Like, you know, what actually matters. So. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give someone out there that is, that's got a big vision, a dream for themselves. They're looking to make their one day happen. What advice would you give them if you could just give them one little nugget? So you know me well enough to know that I don't give advice because I feel that advice (laughs) is worth what you pay for it. Um, I can, I can offer shared experience. Great. Okay. So my shared experience is to know what you care about and what you're willing to die on the hill for and do that and don't do anything else. Mm. You know, there's so many other things and it's so easy to get distracted and, you know, you can only do a couple of things Mm -hmm. amazingly and focus matters. So pick the one thing or two things that you care the most about and you're willing to die on the hill for, and just do that. Don't do anything else. Mm. I feel like this circles us right back to the top where we started as far as what matters to you, what values do you have? Like, what are you willing to like really kind of like stand there behind and fight for? Um, Have you ever read any Mark Manson? I haven't. Uh, I think you'd be, I think you'd be interested in his work. He, um, his first book was the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And then, oh, yeah, no, of course I have. Yes. Of course okay. I have. Okay, good. Yes, yes, and, yes, yes, yes. Yes. And sorry. his, his second book, um, a book about hope, uh, mm-hmm. we're all fucked, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. And he talks about values in there and how we all have them, whether we've acknowledged what they actually are or not. And I think taking that time to really, as you're suggesting, define them, like really get very clear and focused on what matters most to you is so valid and necessary in a world where distractions are at an all-time high, where there's so much coming at you that it's very easy to get pulled in different directions and having that, having that inner focus, having those values that are your GPS can really, can really support you in going farther than, farther than faster. Yeah. I was at a curator's conference some years ago at the Walker Art Center, and one of my friends and colleagues, Anthony Huberman, got up and, and he said, you know, we, we need to know, you know, what do we stand for? You know, like, what do you stand for? And I thought long and hard about that, and, and that was a really formative moment for me. You know, I need to know when I wake up every day, 
what I stand for. What did you come to the conclusion? I stand for the possibility of transcendence. Mm, I just got head to toe goosebumps there. Amazing. Okay. Well, I've got one final question and this comes from my own personal gratitude practice at the end of um, every day, as I'm falling asleep, I think of three specific things that I'm grateful for um, reflecting back on my day. And I won't make you come up with three, but I'd love to hear one specific thing that you're really grateful for from the last, let's say 24 hours. One of the things that I am profoundly grateful for in the last 24 hours is my, both my son and my daughter called me last night. Um, they knew that I was doing something yesterday that really mattered to me and they gave me the space to do it. And they called me last night to see how it went. And the fact that they gave space when it was needed, that they made a point to circle back to ask and um, that they are thoughtful and connected to me in that way makes me profoundly grateful. Mm -hmm. So amazing. Thank you for sharing. Thank and you thank, for you, asking. thank you for being here. Where can people find you? People can find me on Instagram, just at Heidi Zuckerman. People can find me on LinkedIn. I actually write almost every day, like 99% of the days, uh, a one minute post about art and what I'm thinking about. Also just my name, Heidi Zuckerman. They can find me on Apple podcasts with the conversations about art on Spotify and uh, yeah, on Amazon with my books. Perfect. Thank you so much for spending an hour of your time today. I find you to be very interesting and I am so grateful for you sharing um, some of your shared experiences and allowing other people to learn from you in the way that I have. I'm again, forever grateful and impacted by you. So thank you for being here. And that's a wrap. We want to hear from you guys. So tag at make one day happen on Instagram and share your biggest aha moment or one thing you can take from this episode and put into action today. If you're ready to go to the next level, I'm currently taking on new one-on-one -on -one coaching and team development clients. Head over to www.makeonedayhappen.com to learn more and book a free breakthrough session with me. Your word of mouth is wildly appreciated in helping us share these conversations with the world. I get so many of my podcasts I listen to from my friends' recommendations. So if anything resonated with you today, send it to someone else who you think would like it too. I know that every podcast out there asks you to subscribe and leave a review, and that's because it really helps us get these shows out there. So please go hit that subscribe button, leave us a review. Every other week, we'll pick our favorite review and hook that person up with a three full-size Lost Range products and a Make One Day Happen goal setting kit. A big thank you to Lost Range. Remember to head over to www.lostrangecbd.com and use code MAKEONEDAYHAPPEN for free prezzies and we'll give 10% of your purchase to Last Prisoner Project. We know you've got a lot of choices when it comes to picking a podcast out there to listen to, so we're so grateful you chose us. Until next time, y'all. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you or your company are looking to jump into the podcast world, now is the time. The Plug Agency is here to connect you to the full power of podcasting. You just record and leave the rest to us. The people are listening and want to hear from you. Theplug-agency.com. That's theplug-agency.com.
click the link in the episode description for an exclusive offer.